Thank you for your patience, and we apologize for the technical difficulties that we had. They were out of our hands, and uh, we are here now, and we're ready to serve the Lord and rock and roll with you guys. Are you ready to get into the Word today? Are you guys ready to get back to our man, Zechariah? Praise the Lord. Go to Zechariah chapter 13. Today's message is, On That Day. Come on, say that. On That Day. One more time. Come on, one more time. There you go. On that day. As you hear that phrase in this chapter, underline it in your Bible. On that day. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Every time you see on that day, read it with me. On that day, y'all weren't ready for that. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On Come on, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Israel, Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Rimnan, the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by himself, with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shemai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Somebody say amen. Now say on that day. We are talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that day. On that day. When Jesus returns back to this earth. Now the wonderful thing about this is, is you're not reading this in Revelations in the New Testament. You're reading this in the Old Testament. And so this goes beyond the time of Jesus. This could not be talking about Jesus' first coming to the earth as the Messiah because there was no conquering. There was no destroying of the nations, was there? Now think to yourself and ask yourself, was this the reason 
that most likely caused the Jewish people to miss Jesus the first time? Think about it. Here's the prophecy. Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus comes, wouldn't you expect the Messiah to do this? Think about it. Look at the passage. Judea will, uh, Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem on that day when the nations gather against her. I will come against them, make Jerusalem a movable rock for the nations. They will injure themselves. I'll strike every horse with panic. Doesn't that sound like something you would expect to happen when the Messiah comes? This is what I believe is the reason why the Jewish people did not receive Jesus as their king. Because they literally believed that Jesus was going to come in the line of David like a conquering king and destroy all the nations that surrounded her. They were expecting Armageddon, Davi, to happen right in front of their eyes. But does Jesus come and bring Armageddon? No, Jesus comes first as the suffering servant before he comes as the conquering king. And so as we look at this passage, I want you to think of it as you would of a Jew of this day, Zacharias' day, rebuilding the temple, and as a Jew of the time of Jesus, and now as a believer waiting for Jesus to come back. So you're going to put yourself in three people's shoes. How did the people of Zacharias' day look at this? How did the people of Jesus' day look at this? And how can you look at it today? Well, first of all, looking at it from the point of view from the Jewish people of that day, remembering the context of Zechariah, they are rebuilding the temple, they are coming out of exile. What you're hearing now in verse 1 is this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, who deforms the spirit of man within him. God says, I am your God and I made all of this. Don't be discouraged. No matter what Babylon did to you, no matter what Assyria did to you, I am God and I have it all. All under control. And if you notice, the first thing he says to them is that he stretches out the heavens. Do you know that today in modern science we have recognized that the galaxy is still ever expanding? They thought even at these times that the universe was stagnant. It was just created. It was what it was. But we have determined since Einstein and in modern science that the universe is continually expanding. And God says, I'm the one stretching it. Isaiah 42.5 says the same thing, hundreds of years even before Zechariah, that it is our God. He is saying, I am in control, and I stretch forth these heavens, and he is still stretching them to this day. The next thing that he says to them is that I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. That means he's going to be giving them, uh, Jerusalem's going to become a drink of poison or of strong drunkenness that's going to make them reel and get sick. And he's going to punish the rest of the nations through Jerusalem. So to the Jew of that day, you're hearing, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God is going to pay back Babylon for what they've done to us. That's what you're hearing in this message. We, Jerusalem, Judah, we're going to get back at those nations who have come to us. And then he begins to say, these things are going to happen. Nations are going to try to tear you down, but you're going to become an immovable rock. Well, you rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. The next things that you begin to see is that nations come to the second and third and fourth generations and they don't really defend them. They don't really defeat them, rather. You see the Maccabees getting somewhat of a freedom, you know, a couple hundred years after this, but that freedom doesn't last very long. Then they become oppressed by the Greeks and the Jews. I mean, the Romans. 
So now you move up to the time of the Jewish people of Jesus' day. So they're oppressed, and here comes Jesus. What are you thinking now is going to happen? You're now thinking that Jerusalem is going to become an immovable rock, and it's going to defeat all of the nations. But did that happen in Jesus' day? No, as a matter of fact, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was sacked and besieged and tore down by the emperor Tiberius. Think about it, my friends. You were alive during the time of Jesus. You've watched him die. Maybe you're a Jew. You didn't believe he resurrected from the dead. And if you didn't disbelieve him before, Jerusalem got destroyed. Now that Jerusalem's destroyed, you don't believe it at all. Because how could he be the Messiah? He didn't rescue us from Roman hands. And now it's actually gotten worse. But that shows that what's going on in these next verses doesn't primarily apply to the people of Zechariah's day or the people of Jesus' day. This is applying to us. Because it says that Jerusalem is a city that people come against. Well, in 70 A.D., for the Jews of Jesus' time, they lost the city of Jerusalem. When did the Jews get back the city of Jerusalem? Not until 1949. The time when Jerusalem came back to Israel after World War II. So this prophecy couldn't even have applied to any other generation up until between 70 A.D. until the 19 late 40s, early 50s, because there was never a Jerusalem occupied by the Jews. So on that day, that day couldn't have been in Zechariah's day, and it couldn't have been for the Jews of of Jesus' day, and it couldn't have been for the last, you know, 1,500 years plus after Jesus' time. It could only apply to the people of this day. So now you are living in the opportunity, the potential to see that day come. Think of it. Now, where do we see the details of that day being described. Go to Revelations chapter 16. As I've said, outside of Daniel, the book of Zechariah is the most quoted book in Revelation. And here in Revelations chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, you see about the battle of Armageddon, the nations coming against Israel in the future context. Because we believe that the writing of Revelation came around 90 A.D. after the destruction of the temple Jesus knew, Herod's temple. So we know it couldn't have applied to them. So he's taking the same references of Zechariah, John is, and now saying, this is what you guys have to be ready for. Look at Revelation chapter 16. When you're there, say I'm there. Starting in verse 14, they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. We know the great day as that day, on that day. Are you guys following this in your Bible? Come on. On the great day of the Lord Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keep his clothes with them so that he will not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Mmm, all the congregations say, come on. Mmm, this is good. Are you loving this? 
Here you see John the Revelator explaining how this is going to happen. That literally the sixth angel is going to release these demons and this curse upon the earth. And these people who have received the mark of the beast, they are now going to be demon possessed and say, let us go against Israel. And they are going to head out to this valley where battles have been fought before. We'll get to it in just a moment, but in Second Chronicles 35, 24 through 25, talks about Josiah dying in the battle there in the fields of Megiddo, which is the same as Armageddon. You're seeing here this place of fighting among Israel. The kings are going to go there. They're going to surround Israel, and they're going to go to try to fight and take it over. But as you begin to read, is that the seventh angel comes down and defeats these armies. And I want you to see it a little bit clearer in Revelation 14, verse 20. Because it says he makes the horses blind and he defeats them. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 20. We even go up to verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Do you know what that results into? 1,600 stadia, 180 miles. When Jesus crushes what we believe to be this 100 million plus army gathered of all the kings of the earth against God's people, When Jesus comes slaughtering them, he says they are like grapes ready to be pressed. And how they make wine is they press it in a wine press. He says the earth is ready to be judged, and he will judge them. And as he squashes a hundred million people, the blood flows as high as a horse's head. The bridle, where it goes into the mouth, as high as a horse's head for 180 miles. You want to know how far that is? That is from here to Madison, Wisconsin, where we go rock climbing in Devil's Lake. That is as far and even further from here to Milwaukee. Three times the distance between here and Rockford. A river of blood. That is on that day. It is a day that will be terrifying for the enemies of God. Now, I don't want to get into eschatology and eschatological things, but if you want to understand the Assemblies of God doctrine, you can go to our website, or you can email me, and I'll send you some new neat doodiddles on the end times. But basically, what we believe is that first what will happen is a rapture of Jesus' church, a calling away, then the rising of the Antichrist, the signing of a peace treaty in the Middle East for seven years, giving Jerusalem and Israel the opportunity to rebuild the temple. During that three and a half years upon the earth, there will be peace. There will be a mark that is given where everybody has to make allegiance to the Antichrist to buy and sell. We would think of this like a credit card. But sometime in the middle of that three and a half years, the Antichrist defiles that temple in Jerusalem, makes a sacrifice. And by doing that, he then offends the Jews. The peace treaty is broken. And then they begin to plan to come against the Jews. But at this time, for the last three and a half years... 
God begins to bring these curses of the angels and the bowls of wrath. During that time, these kings mount together their army and they come against Israel. At this point, it's at the end of the three and a half years, the total of the seven. The seven being the tribulation, the last three and a half being the great tribulation, and this last part of the great tribulation being the battle of Armageddon, demon-possessed armies coming against Israel and Jesus riding on a white horse, defeating the people. As high as a horse's head, the blood flows like a river for 180 miles. Then at that point, you now see what I believe happens in Zechariah, going back to Zechariah chapter 12, after this great and wonderful day. Now you see this great repentance of the Jewish people. Now, at a certain time, or rather, I should say, some people say that verses 10 through 14 happens after the peace treaty is broken and the Jewish people begin to repent and serve the Lord because now they see they've made a deal with the devil and now they want to go back to their God of Israel and they realize that Jesus was the Messiah. But to me, that doesn't make that much sense to the context because in the context it says on that day they will see him, the one whom they have pierced, and there will be great weeping there. So the way I understand it is after the battle of Armageddon, then the Jewish people who have been saved and rescues now realize that Jesus was their king. He is the, the suffering servant and the conquering king, and they repent, and they now serve the Lord. And what we have now is the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ upon the earth with the Christian believers and the Jewish believers ruling as kings and priests unto our God on the earth. And the Bible says the devil and the beasts are thrown into the, the, the pits of hell. We can see the pits of hell we can see them being tormented and then a baby will live to a hundred and and many will live to a thousand in that whole time period will live it to be a thousand and so that is this millennial reign of christ as king living upon earth then after that he calls forth everyone both the dead who have been in hell and those who have been upon the earth and those who have lived and on the earth he calls the great white throne judgment after the great white throne judgment hell and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and the earth is recreated heaven comes down to earth and the new Jerusalem is where we dwell for all of eternity. So basically, in summary, what you're looking for is the rapture, the Antichrist, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the salvation of the Jews, a thousand-year millennial reign, the great white throne judgment, then the new earth and everlasting torment for those who disobey God. If you're ready for that day, say, I'm ready. Now, all of that can be found on our website under our beliefs, and I can give you more information on that. But now look at verse 10 and see how this works together. On that day, God has delivered them. We'll just start in verse 9. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. You see that reference in Revelation 16, 14 through 16, and Revelations 14 through 20. Now, what happens on that day? I believe the salvation of the Jewish people. He, will, he says, and I will pour out, verse 10, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. This is where I believe what we've been talking about in Romans and in chapter 9, ending all Israel will be saved. This is what I believe. I believe that day all Israel will be saved. Some uh, commentators say that all of Israel can be saved or that many in Israel will be saved. But I don't believe that to be true to what Paul was saying. I believe that on this day, after the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in, God spares them from this destruction. All of Israel, all the people 
will serve God that day. That's what I believe. So he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And why is this, by the way? Because God favors them. And favor ain't fair, y'all. He could have picked the Indian people. He could have picked the Babylonian people. But he picked the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's just the way it T.I. is. Tis. Are y'all with me? If you don't like it, you got to take it up with the potter. Because that's what he chose. He said, I'm choosing Jacob. I've made a covenant with them. I've made a covenant with David. They've suffered. Now somebody says, well, I want the Puerto Rican people to get that same blessing. Or I want the Italian people. Listen, then that means you would have to go through everything they went through. They've been put in slavery more than any other people. They went through the Holocaust, the greatest destruction towards the race. They have gone through more than any other people. The promises, this is God's blessing back to his people for remaining true to his old covenant. Even though some have been lost along the way by rejecting Jesus, he is still true by setting apart these people for himself. And so they will see whom they have... Oh, let's get there. So the spirit of grace and supplication, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The beautiful thing is here, it says the Lord is telling them this, but then it says they will look upon me. So we know here that Jesus is Yahweh God, that he takes on that divine title. The one talking to Zechariah, Davi, this entire time says, now they will look upon me. So Jesus just wasn't a good man. Jesus was the God man incarnated into the flesh. And they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will grieve bitterly. For as one grieves for the firstborn. On that day, see that day, the day they're saved from judgment in Armageddon, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Are they weeping because of death and the, the destruction of their enemies? No. They're weeping because they've realized that they have rejected Christ for the last 2,000 plus years. They're realizing that God was merciful to them even though they didn't deserve it. God was kind to them. That's why they're weeping. It's weeping of repentance. The land will mourn. Each clan by itself, their wives by themselves. And it begins to name the clans with their wives. And so it talks about a communal repenting. Look at John 19:37 to see this beginning to be fulfilled because before the that day, before destruction came, there were Jews who repented and saw that they had crucified Jesus because it started for them right at the time of the birth of the church. Look at John 19, 37. John 19, verse 37. Moving it up just a few bit to verse 34. The man who saw it, he has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and is testifies so that you may also believe these things happen so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. No, none of his bones will be broken. And as Scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Yet many didn't repent that day, but they still looked on him. But then on that day, the Jewish people will look on the one they've pierced, looking back through the times of history, looking back to this scripture here in John, looking back on how they mistreated the Christians, and then they will mourn and repent. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. If you don't think this applies to Jesus, I think this says it better than any other verse. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. 
The only difference between the Jewish people mourning and the rest of the people mourning is that God is not destroying them and making their blood the river that flows as high as a horse's head, 180 miles. They are mourning along with all of the earth for rejecting him, but he is sovereignly saving his people. Now, what does this mean for us today? On that day, what can we apply that message to our life? Well, obviously we can pray for the salvation of the Israel people, that now they will repent, that they will not be around individually for that great tragedy, that tribulation that's coming upon them, that now they can be spared from that, that their children can be spared. So we want to pray for the peace of Israel, the salvation of the Jews. Amen? The other application of this message is that we personally need to be ready for Jesus to come back. Jesus is coming back. There is going to be that day. And if everything I told you, eschatologically speaking, is a little off, you may be here for that day. That's where the understanding of a pre-trib rapture comes in or a post-tribulation. Everybody believes that the Christians will be caught up and transformed and brought back on this earth for a millennial reign with Jesus to some believe it will happen before the seven years in Armageddon. Others believe it will happen at the same time of Armageddon. So either way, you need to be ready for Jesus to come back. Amen? So whatever train you're getting on, just get on the glory train where it comes. Amen? Don't worry about post-trip, pre-trip. Just know that Jesus Christ is coming. And that's the application. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 24 as we prepare ourselves for that day. Come on, somebody say that day i got 20 minutes to prepare you for that day. Do you want to be prepared for that day? Mm-hmm. Come on. Matthew chapter 24, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, talking about the end of the age, Christ's return. Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple. I love showing this to people who don't think that the Bible has prophecy. Show them that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, that no stone will lay upon one another. And there is no doubt that the Gospels came before 70 A.D. Our Gospels were being written in 50 and 60 A.D. Matthew was done, Mark was done, and Mark and Matthew both prophesy this so clearly. It is a prophecy some 20 years at best, maybe 10 years at the least, before the destruction, Jesus says, it's going to happen. You see this building, not one stone will be left upon another. But look at verse 4 of Matthew 24. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Do you know that in these last days, now that we are preparing for that day, like no other generation on earth, we are ready for that day because Israel is now a nation and we're now seeing the conflict of the Middle East. We know we're at a place that John Wesley wasn't even at. We're at a place where the reformers weren't even at. Why? Because Jerusalem wasn't a nation. In their lifetime, it couldn't have been conquered because it wasn't a nation. Are you with me? So now, since 1949, Jerusalem has been a nation occupied by the Jews. You are living in that day where the other day, that that day, you're living in that day for the that day. Amen? And this day is getting ready for that day. Let's say it that way. We're in this day getting ready for that day. And what's the first thing Jesus says to people that are in this day getting ready for that day? He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Is there any coincidence that right now more than the entire history of the christian church ellie there is more deception upon this planet than ever before 
Man, you go to YouTube, you can hear every witch doctrine you can think of. You can hear every, you hear people claiming to be Jesus from Puerto Rico. You hear gurus claiming to be Jesus. You got this this crazy cult believing this. You got Jehovah Witnesses believing this. Mormons believing this. Church of Scientology believing this. Christian scientists believing this. There is more deception upon this earth than ever before. Sometimes I understand what the Bible says, that if those days were not cut short, even the elect would be lost. Just imagine if the church is raptured, like the Bible says, and you no longer have us preaching on TV. You no longer have uh, churches like us on corners. All you have left are these religious buildings. Could you imagine how hard it would be just for an average person to wake up in the morning and know what the truth is? There would be no other option. They would have no other way to know except if they themselves went to the Bible and began to study it. But they'll be so deceived. Jehovah Witnesses have the Bible and they don't even understand it. That's why the Bible says that if those days were not cut short, that even the elect would be lost. So my friends, take that seriously. Watch out that no one deceives you. One of the things that I love to do is ground my faith in God in church history. I ground my faith in God in church history because the church put together the Word of God. Somebody says, well, I use the Word of God and it's only the Word of God. Well, that's real spiritual and that makes a lot of sense. But how would you know the Word of God if it wasn't Christians that put the Word of God together? Now, if you're familiar with Catholic, Roman Catholic apologetics, uh, apologetic arguments, you'd say, well, that's what they say to prove that they're right. But you have to understand they weren't Roman Catholic like they are. They were Christians like the way we were. Uh, we are autonomous believers. That means they weren't under one great big church and one great big bishop. They were autonomous, independent believers, all working together, praying, seeking God to discover which text was the one that Paul really wrote. Was the Gospel of Thomas legitimate? And so it was the church that guarded the Word of God. And so when I look back in history, I like to start around, you know, 70 A.D., 90 A.D., when our apostles were dying. What were the disciples of the disciples living like? What was the message like for the first 300 years of the Christian church? You see, my friends, you begin to understand what we call today the fundamentals, where the creeds and doctrinal statements of that day, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasians' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and they all state the basic things. There's one God. That God is revealed in three divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These books that we have, uh, 66 altogether, the 39 of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New, are the Word of God, the message of God to us today. That that Jesus Christ was both God and man in the flesh. That, that Jesus alone, through faith alone in him, can be saved. So we can only be saved through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection of the cross. And that one day he's coming back to judge the world. And that there will be an eternal heaven uh, on earth or an eternal lake of fire punishment for those who serve the devil. See, those fundamentals you see throughout the church age. And, of course, the Sheikaboomba power of God working with them. Amen. As Justin Martyr said, who came 50 years after the time of the apostles, he says the working of miracles are still with us today. Amen. So Justin Martyr was seeing the working of miracles in his life. Well, you look out, it says, watch out that no one deceives you. Look at your neighbor and say, watch out. Then it says, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Right now, there's over a thousand people claiming 
to be Jesus, if not more, upon this planet. Over a thousand, and that is the most it has ever been. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you will not be alarmed. Right now, there's over a hundred wars and conflicts being fought around this planet right now. From the different apartheids and African nations to the things that have happened in post-Russia and, and the parts of Eastern Europe to the revolutions being fought against Islamist extremism and the ones that were involved in, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, and Iran with the people having civil unrest, the civil unrest in parts of the Philippines, uh, the civil unrest that exists right now in parts of Latin America, even Mexico being under a guerrilla war from those that are trying to take over with the, uh, the influence of the drug, the drug cartels, over a hundred major conflicts in the world right now. The Bible said these would be happening. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. Those are the things that we're seeing. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Right now, there is estimated between a half a billion to a billion people starving on this planet right now. And yet in America, we have more food. To, we have enough food to feed the nations of the world. We glutton ourselves with it, and we throw it away and waste it. And yet there are famines right now because it's a curse upon this world because people are greedy. And it's suffering. It's causing the suffering of the people. Earthquakes. Have I have to even say any more? You've seen more earthquakes in these last years than have ever happened in the history of mankind. From 1970 onward, they began to find out that we are experiencing somewhere, sometimes upwards of 50 to 100 major earthquakes a year, when in decades before, there wasn't even that many earthquakes. And it says in various places, these tsunamis and these uh, earthquakes in waters, causing there to be tsunamis, this would be a various place, especially to the people of the ancient days, understanding water and understanding land, and then to think that there's an earthquake in the water that would send it to the land. That would be strange to them, a strange place for an earthquake to come from from and yet you are living in those days right now and the destruction of Haiti's 200,000 death total in in uh, the earthquake there has been one of the greatest deaths because of earthquakes since we have been tracking these earthquakes but it says it's just the beginning it's just the beginning. So when you see Jesus from Puerto Rico come up, you see the starving people in Ethiopia, you hear of the wars and the conflicts around the world, you see these earthquakes. It's just the beginning. It's not even that day yet. Verse 9, Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. You see, my friends, persecution is a sign of the end times. Davi, I want you to continue reading. What does it say at verse 10? Continue reading for me, brother. Amen. Many will turn away from the faith. Why? Because of the persecution that comes. Thank you, brother. Right now, more Christians are dying than ever before. Estimated 100,000 a year. The worst places to live right now in this world and be a Christian is North Korea, China, and the occupied Muslim nations of Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Afghanistan, and Indonesia. These are the worst places to live. Nepal, 
would be up there, but it's ruled by Hindus. These nations are killing Christians by the hundreds, sometimes the thousands. The other ones have been African nations like Sudan that have killed entire villages of Christians, or they have taken the men and cut off their arms, raped the women, so the men can't work in the farm anymore, and that the women have now become the sex slaves to these men. My friends, don't turn away because of persecution. As Corey Tim Boom said, persecution is the birthplace for revival. Persecution is the birthplace for the growth of the church, as it's always been from the time of the book of Acts, that when we suffer persecution, it's when we pray the most. It's when we witness with the most fervency, and it's when we go out to the other ends of the earth preaching the gospel. So my encouragement to you today, as as we're in this day, getting ready for that day, watch out for these signs. Look at them increase. Look at them come even more. But do not turn your back on Jesus. Do not betray another. Do you know that in uh, Hitler's Germany that the children were taught in school to betray their parents if they went against the Nazi regime? They were taught to spy on their family, that people were turned in by their own children because mom and dad talked over the dinner table about their disagreement with Hitler's Germany. This will happen again during the time of the Antichrist when he commands us all to worship his image and to take his mark upon us under the pains of being beheaded if we don't. My friends, your children, if they're in public schools at that time, will be taught to betray you even if uh, it costs you their life. They will betray you. Another reason to homeschool. Amen? But if you're not here, you have nothing to worry about. But I wouldn't be a good pastor unless I prepared you for persecution. Because as David Wilkerson and many others have said, here we are preaching in America this rapture, this freedom from persecution, while the others right now are already fulfilling the 100,000 a year. They're already in it, and we're just claiming, oh, God, swing low, sweet chariot, take me home, when they're already suffering in it right now. How dare we say we won't shed our blood for Jesus? We must lay down our lives for Jesus. As the Wesley and brothers said, there's always two things a a Wesleyan is ready to do. Die for Jesus and preach the gospel. That needs to be our heart, that we're always ready to die for Jesus. Yes, Adolfo and I have had to count the cost as we prepare to go to Pakistan. But isn't that the cost that every one of you should also have counted already? Shouldn't you have already counted the cost, whether by life or by death, you belong to Jesus? then why is it any different if we now go to these places where that becomes a reality? Our brothers and sisters are living in that reality right now. But as the promise was to the people of Israel, we know His promises to the church that He will destroy the earth one day. He will say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and we will see God save His people. And in closing, I want you to see the image that is around the throne of these martyrs who are crying out unto the time of all of their number is fulfilled. Turning with me to Revelations. Revelations, looking for the scripture of the martyrs that are underneath the throne. Help me find it as we look for it right now together. 
Turn, uh, turn to chapter 6, verse 9, and stand with me, please. If you're looking at the timeline that we agree with in the assemblies of God, this would be during the great tribulation, that last three and a half years. The, the believers who have been called out, this 144,000, begin to become evangelists and preachers. They've been saved by God's divine grace to preach in the time of persecution. But they begin to be martyred. And they begin to die. And here we see under the fifth seal, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And this could be just from the time of tribulation or it could be all times. But he sees the voice of the martyrs here. He sees the martyrs. In verse 10, they called out in a loud voice. Now, do you understand the reason of the name of that website? Voice of the martyrs. Here's their voice. They're underneath the throne of God. Their blood has been shed for believing in Jesus and having a testimony. And this is their voice. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth, and avenge our blood. When is that day coming, is what they're asking. They're crying out for it. That's why in the, the book of Romans, I'm asking you, when does God turn his love towards us and there towards hate? When does he then say, I hate you because you've persecuted my church, because you've rejected me, and no longer it's God so loved the world, it's God so slaughtered the world till the blood was as high as a horse's head and flowed 180 miles. When does that turn take place? My friends, I don't want to be there when that happens, but it does. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. What if you're one of those numbers? What if right now your number is to be a part of that? Will you lay your life down for Jesus? Will you give your life for Jesus? We've seen it happen in America on Columbine when the school shootings happened with Cassie Bernard. We've seen people confess Christ even in this nation unto death. Two old men protesting abortion in front of high schools shot and execution style. Two men witnessing on the streets of Miami shot execution style. These are not the things you hear about in the news. But persecution inside of America is beginning to rise. And it's coming from the same place that it comes from as they come against Israel. It's Demons being loosed on upon this earth. And people who have a, have a depraved mind are believing these demons that if they kill us, that somehow their world will be better. Just as Nazi Germany convinced the Germans, if you kill and slaughter the Jews, they are just rats and dogs. Your life will be better. Just like in the time of the persecution of the Christians, when Nero saw Rome burn and he blamed it on the Christians, and he says, it was their fault. We'll be better in the Roman Empire after we've burned them at the stake. And he lit his roads with the flames of Christians at the stake burning. Those were the torches on his robes. Rose were the people of Christ burning at the stake. My friends, are you willing to give your life for Jesus? We don't know when that day will come. But we know that it will come to avenge our blood. 
to avenge the blood of the martyrs. And until then, don't walk around with the martyr's complex saying, oh, woe is me. When am I going to die for Jesus? No, live the way Jesus did. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And then he was sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends, walk with the joy of God. I remember hearing a story that my parents read me as a little boy, that as one of these people were being persecuted, that as they were being whipped, they began to sing songs of praise unto God. And the people whipping them were so angry that as they were whipping them, they weren't cursing them, but they were singing songs of praise. And the man, after he was whipped, said as he sung those songs of praise, it felt like children taking yarn and putting it against his back. That God relieved him of the pain during that time. That their whips became like just little things of yarn being tossed up against his back. Because as he praised and sought God, God delivered him from that suffering. My friends, there's a promise that God will be with us. As you read Fox's book of martyrs, that as the flames were licking up their sides and consuming their flesh, they were singing songs of praise and joy to God. My friends, that is the Christian life. It's a Christian life that looks forward to the day of God's judgment, that goes out and warns people about His coming, and then lives knowing that our lives could be one of those numbers. That all He has to do is say, Now I pull Adam's number. Adam, it's your turn to join Stephen, to join Paul, to join James. It is now your turn to lay down your life for me. When He pulls your number, I want you to have the same boldness and the same testimony as those who have went before you, saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Amen. Lilani, would you come to the keyboards as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you that in this day we are preparing for that great day. That great day, Father God, when you come and you send your son Jesus as a conquering king. As Zacharias said, You will make Judah and Jerusalem that day a cup of reeling to the nations. You will destroy them all. We say, Maranatha, even come now, Lord Jesus. Do you understand what the early Christians were saying now when they said, Maranatha? They were saying, Jesus, bring Armageddon and deliver your people. Lord, we pray that in the times ahead, that if we should live another day, that we would preach as if there are no more days. That, God, every day we would live as if it was our last. They asked Corey Tim Boom, how did you make it during the time of the Nazi occupation of your land? She lived in one of the European nations, and as a small child, her family hid Jews and Christians in their house. She then, after Germany was defeated, went to persecuted nations and helped them go through the toughest times of their life. In one place, she was in Africa. They were told to leave because the the revolutionaries were coming. She preached the last message to a congregation that was all slaughtered after she left. And she prepared them to lay down their lives for Jesus. And somebody asked her, how do you prepare somebody to lay down their life for Jesus? And she said, I 
asked my dad one day, Dad, what if they, the Germans catch us and they kill us and take us away? I'm so scared. How will we do it? How can we make it through that time? She said her dad told her, when you go to the store and I send you to buy me something, do I give you the money hours ahead of time? Or do I just give you the money right when you need it? Right when it's time to go. And she said, Daddy, you give it to me right before I go. He said, we will make it through that time because God will give us the strength right when we need it. And she answered those Christian workers and she said, this is how I prepare them. That if they learn to trust in God now, when their time to lay down their life comes, God will give them the strength that they need at that moment. So, Father, we trust You with our lives. And we decide to live for You, regardless of what this world does to us. And we pray for mercy upon the lost. That though we know the nations will be judged, we pray for individuals to be saved. We pray for as many as we can bring to come with us. As many as You have called and chosen those, God, that You know are waiting to hear that message that will receive it as we have received it. God, send us forth to them. In the name of Jesus, prepare us to preach the gospel. To prepare for that day. Just take these few moments now and just prepare for that day.